Good morning. Any, uh, any poetry fans in the room? Hip-hop? Well, hip-hop, yeah. Definitely a new form of poetry. I'm thinking more, more classical stuff. I, I wasn't sure if there would be much in the room. And I'm, I'm curious if anybody can tell me what this image is. Anybody at all? Not even Rochelle. I was wondering, did you take English at all at Trent? No, there we go. See, any, any, if, if the Trent students were still here rather than home for the summer, anyone who had taken English would probably be able to identify this. This is a picture of a poem written by William Blake. William Blake was an English poet who was known for his innovative use of different technologies to create kind of plates with poems on them. And he, like most uh, English poets, was writing in a context where he was really responding to the Christian culture around him. And his poetry is kind of a funny, funny thing as a Christian to process, because a lot of it ends up being a bit of an attack on certain parts of Christianity, um, especially the Old Testament God and kind of the idea of God's wrath. Um, but some of the poems really seem to get Jesus' love and grace and God's revelation in nature. And this is one of the ones that kind of was touched on when I was in first-year English, and, and to me seemed like, yeah, okay, I, I, I get that, I'm okay with that. I'm going to read it for you. Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed, gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the veils rejoice. Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee, little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I, a child, and thou a lamb, we are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. Now, anybody who's familiar with the Christian story understands this reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who came and became a vulnerable child in a manger, one who was poor and weak, and he calls himself the lamb because of his sacrificial love for the world. <clears throat> and this is something that as a Christian, I read and went, yeah, okay, I, I understand this. Interestingly enough, however, this poem ended up being the source of a real revelatory experience for me within my class. And it stemmed from the fact that I was sitting here going, sure, I take this for granted, and none of my classmates were. Many of them were like, what, what is, what's being talked about here? I don't understand. And when the teacher explained to the class that this poem touches on the fact that Christians believe that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, my classmates were like, what? I've, I've never heard of this before. Jesus is God? And for me, coming from a Christian background, raised in a church that taught this regularly, I thought to myself, surely, surely, if you know anything about Christianity, <clears throat> you know this. You know that Jesus is considered to be God by Christians. And it made me realize, well, that just means most of my classmates know absolutely nothing about Christianity. Now, all of us might not have such a distinct moment where we processed the fact that we're not the norm in our culture. But I think anybody who's been a long-time Christian would at least be able to say, yeah, this is something that I've recognized over the years, that the connection to Christianity that I once took for granted isn't something that the people around me take for granted. 
This is probably something that even more presses on the people who are older than myself in this room. Because the reality is that I don't remember many of the Christian markers of our culture that, that many of the older people talk about in my Christian circles. They'll look back on the times when the, all of the politicians had to be Christians, or when all of the schools prayed the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis, or one of the ones that I do remember is when stores used to be closed on Sundays because of the fact that they recognized the importance of Sabbath rest. And this is something that, that, you know, as a kid, I can remember only the Beckers down the street was open on Sundays. And, and, and now that's not the case. Everything's open almost as long as it is any other day of the week because Sundays aren't a particularly special day. Whatever the markers are that kind of show up in our lives, reminding us of the fact that the culture around us isn't connected to Christianity the way that we are, I think it's an undeniable fact that, that we are no longer able to take for granted that our neighbor understands the Christian story. And this is, this is something that sociologists have been studying for some time, trying to figure out where exactly did this come into play. Many of them actually would point to Europe being the first place where that began happening, and they'd actually point at World War I as the most important turning point. That at that point in time, a lot of people became disenchanted with Christianity and saw how the imperialism and the, the wars that Christianity had led to were not a good thing. And they blamed the religion of the culture for that. And so there was a real loss of connection to that, an identity crisis that took place within Europe. In North America, we were a little bit more insulated from that, partly because of the fact that we didn't suffer the same losses in those wars that took place in the 20th century. And so Christianity clung on a little longer. In fact, in the States, I would say, really, they're just going through the death of this Christendom culture. But we as Canadians to the north can look and say, some of the things that are going on down there, we've actually already gone through. Statistics show that something like still 85% of the Christian or of the American population associates as Christian, even if they don't regularly attend church or have much in the way of Christian beliefs. That's not the case in Canada. It's a much lower percentage than that, something in the range of 40% that actually call themselves Christian, even in a cultural sense. In Canada, a lot of sociologists will point to the 1960s as probably the biggest turning point. And, and that, that, that was the time when in the States and in Canada, we had major social revolutions where a lot of the values that were once held were kind of pushed back against and rejected. In the United States, the thing that went on that didn't really happen in Canada is that a group of people bunkered down as Christians and created what was called the moral majority. And they fought hard to remain prominent politically, whereas in Canada, we really had nothing like that take place. And so a lot of sociologists will say that Canada is a, a generation or two ahead of the United States in terms of losing touch with its Christian roots. And that's something that I was getting to experience firsthand at Trent University, where the under-30s that I was, I was walking alongside, for the most part, had no attendance at church when they were kids and had no sense of this Christian story. They weren't baptized into the faith and then walk away from it. They just, they just weren't connected to it whatsoever. How do we navigate this shift that we've been going through from being the norm in our culture, from being the ones who generally can assume our values are shared by the people in power and our values are going to be shared by the people down the street from us, to being a smaller subsect of society? I would argue that the way we should respond to that is to seek the welfare of our society. This is a principle that I derive from 
scripture as well as other theology that's gone on since. And in particular, there's a lot of theologians who are pointing to an interesting period in the Bible as a parallel for our experience today. And that's the exile that Israel goes through in the middle of the Old Testament. We're going to take a look at Daniel 1 as Daniel and his friends go through that experience of exile and then consider the responses that they had before them to the culture around them. And I hope we'll see that that shapes us and and can help us wrestle with how we too should respond to a culture that we feel isolated in and disoriented in and like we've been relegated to the sides of. Starting in Daniel 1, verses 1 to 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Anybody who's grown up in Sunday school will, will kind of recognize those names, especially the, the, the kind of the Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? These are, these are characters of some of the fun stories that you learn of God protecting his people in foreign lands, right? And I, at the same time, I think most of the time in Sunday school, we mostly focus on their stories as a little bit of kind of a moral tale for our own journey. What we might miss and, and might not get touched on in Sunday school nearly as thoroughly as it, it could be is just the cultural dislocation that these Jews are going through. There were a number of things that were touched on in this passage. First, we saw the invasion take place of Judah and the taking away of all of the emblems from the temple. This is something that for us, you know, I don't know how we would react if somebody came in and stole the artwork off of our walls, for example. We might just say, oh, well, that's sad, but we can make do without. But In the day that this was taking place, this wasn't just a a matter of some beautiful things being lost. This was actually a statement that our God is greater than your God being made by the empire at hand. They were showing that our God can dominate yours, and so we're going to take those things that have been devoted to him and devote them to our God instead. So there's a religious supremacy that's being shown in that simple act. The second thing that they do is they take many of the finest young people in the land, and they pull them out of Judah, and they bring them into a place where they teach them the ways of their culture. This is cultural supremacy. They're saying, look, we have a better way of understanding the world than your people do, and we're going to force all of the the movers and takers, the engagers of your youth, to actually abide by our teachings on the way that things are. This is something that that 
again, we probably can't relate to super strongly at this point in time because we've never had somebody actually force their culture on us. In fact, we, we get to benefit from a culture that is largely forced on others. <clears throat> However, that being said, it's very clear that the culture that we live in doesn't actually share our core values. So we have this weird tension as North American white middle class people that on one hand we benefit greatly from the, the privilege that our type of people are treated with in our culture. At the same time, there is this sense that there's a better way than the Christian way that's just built into the way of thinking of the culture around us. And again, if, if you talk to any young people who have been at a place like Trent University, there is a tremendous amount of pushback overt or not, against the Christian way of thinking. Because our culture has pushed, pushed back at large against those roots and has said, no, secular science, where, where, where all we base our ideas off of is what we can objectively prove, is, is the way of doing things. And if you don't toe the line and if you aren't part of our, our trade system and if you aren't part of our cultural values, if you don't see things the way that we see things, then at the very least, you will be ignored. <clears throat> you will be isolated. And as Christians, this can feel very frustrating when we look at the secular media and we see it losing touch with most of what it is that we value. And it can be frustrating when we see that many of the young people just don't have any sense whatsoever of Christian morality. And, and on one hand, this can be a bad thing if we're thinking we need to force it down their throats. But on the other hand, I think as Christians, we would say, no, no, these things are actually good things for our youth. We want our youth to have a good sense of Christian morality. We want our youth to have a good sense of who God is and how he loves them and how they can root their identity in him, not in science. And it can be frustrating and disorienting when we just see that's not the way that our culture operates any longer. Perhaps the greatest illustration of this <clears throat> is what takes place right at the end of the passage, where, where the names of these four young men are taken and they're changed into names uh, that represent their gods instead. And this is kind of the ultimate symbol of an attempt to convert the, these young people not just to uh, the religion of the day, but a whole way of life, the whole cultural framework that the Babylonians have. And we can kind of recognize that, the painting with the brush of trying to say our identity should be rooted in the things that our culture advocates rather than our identity as ones who follow God. So I want to be careful. We probably shouldn't overstate our connection with what's taking place in this passage. Again, most of us have never been exposed to direct violence against our family or, or taken out of our homeland. We know there are those types of things going on worldwide today, and we should never say, you know, uh, we get it fully, because we can't. But at the same time, we can at least recognize the emotional dissonance that's taking place here is something that we can relate to. <clears throat> so then the question is, what response do they give? What response could they give? We can see that the response in the Old Testament to the exile is quite varied. There's some desperation, there's some hope, there's some joy, there's, there's a lot of mixed feelings that go on around this. I'd like to look at two passages outside of this passage to try and show the extremes of what can take place in the Old Testament in regards to this exile. First, Psalm 137. The psalmist writes, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
This is capturing some of the ridicule that the Jews faced in this new land. Ha ha, you quaint people. Why don't you sing us some of your old songs and we'll get a good jolly at the fact that that doesn't really have any relevance in the world you're in now. And so the psalmist asks, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. This question, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, is something that, I, again, I think we can relate to, to a certain degree. How can we exalt, how can we rejoice out in the world where we're not really encouraged in that direction? Where we might face some ridicule, or at least, at least we will be looked at as a little bit odd. But I think what comes next is really revealing, <laughs> And, and captures one of the options that we don't like to acknowledge, but really is there in our own hearts, lurking beneath the surface. The psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. This is referring to what we just touched on in Daniel, the looting of Jerusalem. And, and the psalmist says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. This is a really ugly way for this psalm to end. I hope most of us here feel a little bit of jarring at this. And I, I, I'm glad to say I don't suspect most of us are sitting here praying, God, send people to dash the children of the people around us against the rocks. Okay? Fortunately, I don't think we're at that point in violence. And part of that is because of the good message that we have preached to us regularly, that Jesus doesn't advocate that type of violence, that we're supposed to love our enemies. Right? But I think what's, what's going on here in the psalmist's heart is something that we can still slide our way into. Which is that instead of, instead of seeing the people around us as God's children, people that we should love and care for, we can begin to slip into a mindset of resentment and bitterness. That even if it's not the individuals that we hate, we hate the whole cultural context we're in and the people who are responsible for it. And, 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 and that can sink into the way that we live our lives where we tend to wall ourselves off and get defensive and, and think that the only relationship I can have with these people is one of a little bit of animosity, one of, one of distance, one of foreignness. Is this how we're supposed to respond? Is resentment the right answer? We see a lot of Christians responding this exact way and we can see in the media a lot of churches that, that really relish the opportunity to go and to protest and to yell and to tell people that they're bad people. But when we turn to another passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, we see a very different message being proclaimed by one of the great prophets. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile 
and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, Jeremiah here is directly responding to the type of thinking that we just saw in the psalm. He's responding to the people who have been going around saying, don't worry, God's not going to keep us here long. Just bunker down, fight back, resist, do everything you can to make sure that you don't connect with the people around you. Pray revenge against them because God's going to get us out and he's going to bring even greater judgment on these people than he is on us at this point in time. And Jeremiah is not biting. Instead, he brings a completely different message from the Lord. First of all, a message of saying, hey, it's actually God who brought you here in the first place. He has purposes in this, which can be hard to embrace when you're feeling that disorientation and confusion. It it can feel like, God, wouldn't it be better if we were back where we once were? And he's saying, no, actually, God intends something good here. And then his direction to them is not to fight, but rather to live alongside to build communities that are actually integrated into the life of the community around them and to seek the welfare of the people around them. The word here, welfare, is something that doesn't stand out to us immediately uh, as being particularly rich. But actually, in in the Hebrew, the word is shalom. The word shalom is, is a really powerful Hebrew term. Even just looking at a basic definition given in the dictionary or Wikipedia, the, the number of things that it it indicates is quite broad. It indicates peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. Right? So, so what God is saying is, I want you to seek the greatest kind of blessing for the people around you that's even possible, that my love will be poured out on them and they will experience harmony and wholeness and peace. That we should be praying for that. And that we should be living our lives in such a way that we are, we are becoming that kind of community in the midst of this community. Jeremiah is saying, as much as we might feel like the psalmist, as much as we might feel that bitterness and resentment and dislocation, and that's really what the psalms are meant to capture, is kind of the feelings of what it means to be a, a person who's following God. He says, we have to resist those feelings. And instead, we need to be people of peace, people of shalom, in this exile that we're in. And Daniel and his friends, however it is that they got this teaching, they seem to embrace this way of life in the way that they interact with the people around them. So as we look to the rest of the passage, verses 8 to 21, we'll see that they actually do this in the way they interact with the, with the eunuch. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Now here we see Daniel setting out alongside his friends to do something that that is good. They want to remain separate in the way they live their lives from the culture around them. In particular, what's being touched on here is the fact that the Babylonians were sacrificing their food to the idols of their day, and then they were giving the food to these, these young people, and that was kind of a sign that they too were now engaging in worship of these gods. And Daniel and his friends said, no, we can't engage in worshiping your gods, so we're going to ask to avoid partaking in the food, and particularly the meat 
because that was the stuff that was generally sacrificed to the gods. And, and we're told that God gave them favor in the sight of the eunuch, but the eunuch was scared. He said, well, hold on. Hold on. My boss is going to be really angry about this, and this could cost me position or maybe even my head. Would you, would you, would you cost me my well-being for the sake of remaining separate, for the sake of being like this? And Daniel and his friends respond by saying, no. No, we won't. So they said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now this is a risky thing for Daniel and his friends to do. The food laws are at the core of the Jewish faith. Not eating food sacrificed to idols is, is a really big deal for them. So to even be willing to say, if in 10 days we look like we are suffering and your well-being is on the line, we'll start eating that food? That's a big risk. That, that's like somebody here saying to, to somebody, hey, you know, if, if, if this doesn't work out, I will stop going to church. Right? I'll, just, I'll stop going to church entirely for your sake if it will help you. But give me a chance to prove that this isn't going to be a bad thing. Right? And we can only imagine what it would be like to be cut off from the Christian community. But in many ways, that's what they're offering. To say, I'm going to start partaking in idolatry would be to say, I'm going to disconnect myself from my Jewish faith, from my Jewish roots, and probably from the Jewish community that they were existing in. Right? It's a big risk that they take. But God lives up to the test that they put before him. And somehow, on eating this vegetarian diet, which maybe is something that's relevant today too, they manage to actually grow stronger and healthier than the people around them. And so we see that it's kind of a win-win scenario. They take a risk in their faith, trusting God to provide for them. And, and the eunuch is able to say, now I've been blessed by God too. Right? This is an amazing witnessing opportunity. And we see that the faithfulness in even this little thing is something that God honors. And then these men go on to something even greater. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I find this an astounding statement by the author of Daniel. To say that these youths went on to be even better at the arts and learning and practices of the culture around them at the time. Is this the kind of vision that we have for our young people? Would we say, I want my daughter to grow up to be even better at science than the secular scientists? I want her to be even better at arts than the secular artists? I think that's actually a really amazing thing that's being stated here. And yet when you stop and you look at it, is this not good? 
Is this not a good vision that, that we would have Christians so good at the arts and skills of our culture that we would be standing out and that the people around us would be looking and saying, wow, what makes them different? This is living out of that seeking of shalom that's being talked about in Jeremiah 29. That they actually want to be so good at the things of their culture that they will enrich it, that they will contribute things that nobody else is contributing, that the common good will flourish. Now, they do seek to refuse to compromise on their values. We shouldn't miss the fact that they still want to be set apart in the way they live their lives. We should not conform to our culture in every way. But that's a message I think we know. We've internalized that pretty well. Sometimes the push out is the thing that's hardest, where we actually want to demonstrate the concern for the people in the culture around us and to seek its shalom. Often we tend to pit those two things against each other. I can only remain apart if I don't engage in the culture. But here we're shown that's not true. You can do both. You can seek the shalom of the city and still be set apart for God's sake. So then how do we seek the welfare of Peterborough and of Canada in the 21st century? If that's what we're supposed to do, if our response to this period we're in is to seek the shalom of our culture, how do we do that? I found two books particularly helpful in helping shape this a little bit. The first one takes a more personal approach. It's called The Art of Neighboring, and, and the guys group that I meet with on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday nights, we've been, we studied this recently. And it's really focusing on just being the kind of good neighbor that actually stands out in your, in your literal geographic neighborhood. And, and they give some principles that I find really helpful. The first is that we should be interruptible. We should be the kind of people that aren't in such a hurry that if we see a neighbor, we can stop and talk with them. And if they have a need, we can maybe spend some time helping meet that need. We need to fight busyness and actually be interruptible in the way we live our lives. We also need to get engaged in and even maybe start community activities. And they talk about the idea of a neighborhood party to try and encourage more closeness and more interaction within the neighborhood. We should also be willing to host people in our own homes. This is the art of hospitality. And they, they push and say, and sometimes we even need to be willing to be hosted because that can be even scarier, Right? It's a little bit more vulnerable to say, I'm going to go over to your house and live by your standards for a little while and eat the foods that you put in front of me. And yet, sometimes in our isolated culture, that actually breaks down walls even faster than inviting somebody over to our house. And another thing they advocate is prayer walks. That you would go around your neighborhood and you would be praying for the blessing of your very neighborhood. And doesn't this fit in well with Jeremiah 29? <laughs> Pray for the welfare of your city because in, in it, you will find your welfare. If our neighborhoods thrive, is that going to be a good thing for us? Absolutely. Then another book, To Transform a City, advocates a more corporate approach to this, what they call city transformation. This involves participating in the work of frontline organizations and initiatives, both Christian and non-Christian. This is things like Youth for Christ and the Peterborough Pregnancy Support Services, or the wellness, or the, sorry, not the wellness, the uh, um, warming room that we've been helping with, right? That we should, as, as a community, be willing to pour ourselves into those types of initiatives that are seeking the welfare of our city. We should also be willing to live as a foretaste, that our, our community should actually be better at the things that we want to see our culture around us growing in. So if we think that generosity is an important thing for the culture around us, we should be even more generous than the culture around us is. And if we think that 
building good, healthy, strong families should be uh, something the culture around us embraces, which is one of the things I would actually say is a real lost art in the culture around us, then we should be even better at building healthy, strong, lasting families, right? So we can be a little bit of a taste of what the people around us could have, right? So this is living as a foretaste of God's kingdom. And lastly, like the prayer walks in our neighborhoods, to be praying for the city is something that I think we should embrace. And I actually love one initiative that Church in the City has taken up the last couple of years called Prayer in the Park. I don't know if you know, but when city council meets, there's actually a group of Christians who regularly meet across from City Hall and pray for the people who are in there making decisions for our city, which I think is a really powerful testimony to the Christians' willingness to, to, to really pray for the good of the city. And that was actually a response to the fact that they took prayer out of the City Hall meetings. And at first, there were some people who were protesting that. But Glenn and the guys at Church in the City said, you know what? We shouldn't be protesting and trying to make the city council themselves pray. That's our responsibility. We're the ones who believe God needs to bless this city. So instead of protesting and instead of trying to fight to make the people respect our culture, why don't we just do what we were called to do in the first place and pray for the city? We always advertise that event when it's coming up. So, so pay attention to that. That's something that you can join in on very easily. At Auburn, there are a couple things that may inhibit this. One is the us versus them thinking that we can slip into. I think that's really missing the point of the passages about the world. We, we should expect some resistance in the culture around us. But oddly enough, in the Bible, it seems to me the people who tend to resist are the powers of the day, the people who profit from the way our culture is. But there actually seems to be a lot of hope in Scripture that says the average person is yearning for what we have. And we should go expecting some resistance, but also expecting some real hope and some real desperation in the people around us for the better life that we believe God is pointing us to. We also tend to focus on an attractional mindset that says, well, if I can just get people into church, then they can start having what we have. I think we need to break that and instead be the kind of people who go out into the world, into the culture around us, and bring the body of Christ to the culture rather than thinking that we're going to be able to get everybody back into church because that's just not going to happen in a culture where most people have no idea why we meet in church in the first place. And the last one, it really is busyness. We need to avoid too much busyness. And this even includes, <laughs> I'm sure all the church leaders will support me in saying this, too much churched busyness. If you're spending all your time at the church doing church-related activities, you don't have time to be involved in the city. And we really should push ourselves to do that. For Auburn specifically, I think our geographic spread can be a little bit of a challenge at times. One of the things that I would encourage is there's actually care groups that meet in various locations around the city of Peterborough. And in some ways, those might be an even better hub for activity for, for reaching out into the community because they, they're a little bit more localized. Whereas here we know there's some people coming from 45 minutes away to even get here on a Sunday morning. It's hard for you to invest yourself too much in the neighborhood right here, right? And the other thing is that we are still recovering from some of the challenges that we've faced as a congregation. And so there can be a temptation to focus purely on getting back to where we have been rather than what God is calling us to do in a forward-thinking way. And so I think, really, the challenge there is to just say, let's trust God that as we continue to heal from some of the past events that have taken place here, and as we continue to grow numerically, that, that we don't have to hold on to the past. We can trust God with that, the way that Daniel and his friends trusted God to provide for their food. We can take the step of faith and just say, let's be the kind of community that pushes out into the community and really models this type of shalom that we're seeking for it 
and let God bring the increase. For me, this is a challenging message and something that has shaped my thinking for the last few years. After encounters with people at Trent and continuing ministry in the city and up north where we don't see a lot of Christendom, uh, I think it's a good thing to be challenged. Don't just focus on what benefits me, but actually seeks the shalom of the city around us. And in that, we will actually prosper. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your sovereign hand in all that we do. And the reminder that the cultural position we're in right now is not a bad thing. Even if we would love to see the recovery of some of the good traits of Christian culture, Father, we recognize there's a lot of potential here for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth. And we want to be part of that work. So I pray that we would internalize that and we would avoid any us versus them thinking and we would be the kind of people who are willing to give of ourselves for the sake of the welfare of this city and that through that you would be lifted high in the hearts of people all across Peterborough. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.